Hi friends, welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. All right, today we're going to be hearing from Jesus's half-brother, his younger half-brother. Now, Jesus's half-brother here, his name really is Jacob, but in our Bible, he's called James. And it's got nothing to do with real life. In 1604, 1604, England's King James I authorized a new translation of the Bible. And since he authorized the translation of the Bible, he got a few shout-outs in the Bible, including turning Jacob into James, right? Uh, So just a little bit of tangent here, like, so 1604, King James of Scotland, he's the King James VI of Scotland, he becomes King James I of England. And he's in a sticky situation. His immediate predecessor on the throne was Queen Elizabeth I. She had ordered the execution of his mom, Mary Queen of Scots, who had represented like a Catholic threat to Elizabeth's Protestantism. And Elizabeth had really established the supremacy of the Anglican Church, which was founded by her father, King Henry VIII. But now the bishops of the Anglican Church uh, have these rebellious Protestant groups like the Puritans and the Calvinists who are questioning their absolute power. And there's different Bible translations of it. So, um, he authorizes it in 1604. It's not published till 1611. It becomes known as the King James Bible. It's the one we have in our scriptures mostly. It spreads throughout Europe. Uh, it's really up to that point, the most faithful scholarly translation up to date, not to mention the most accessible. So anyway, back to our original point. When you fund a Bible, you get a mention. And that mention is that Jesus's half-brother Jacob is called James. Now, Jacob slash James, and I'll just go back and forth here. I don't know how this will turn out today. He actually doesn't follow Jesus while Jesus is alive. That's crazy, right? As far as we know, James doesn't convert to follow Jesus until after Jesus's resurrection when Jesus apparently appears to him personally. He's like, okay, dang, I guess it's true. He's a hardcore Pharisee Jew, super obedient, super temple, super Christian. And so for us, like, how does that overlap? But like for him, there's nothing crazy. Like for him, he sees Christianity of a fulfillment of his Jewish beliefs. He still keeps obeying all of those things. He, he still keeps going to the temple. It's one and the same for him. Well, when Peter who is the leader of the Christian community in Jerusalem, when he goes off on missionary efforts to build other Christian communities, well, then Jacob is left in charge of the Christian community in Jerusalem. And this is not an easy location to lead the church. Jerusalem is basically the epicenter during his life for Jewish persecution against Christians. It's also the epicenter for Roman oppression of Jews, whether you're Christian or not. On top of all of this, there's a famine while uh, Jacob is trying to lead the church that uh, just is super oppressive. But he, he helps his people get through it, get through all the persecution, get through, and just continues to grow the church through his faithfulness. But then, in the year 62 AD, there is a transition of Roman governors. One governor leaves, and it takes a while for the other governor to show up. 
So in, the, in this political power vacuum, the Jewish high priest at the time takes advantage of the gap, assembles the Sanhedrin, and they condemn James on the charge of, quote, breaking the law, which he had never done. They're just looking for an excuse to murder a Christian leader. And so they have him executed in one of the most brutal ways possible. They, they take him to the top of the temple, to the pinnacle of the temple, the very top that you can get, a couple stories up there, and throw him off. Now you think being thrown off like a two-story building um, would kill you, but he falls on the, the stone and doesn't die. He's broken, hurt, in pain, but not dead. So then they begin to stone him. Getting thrown off the building wasn't enough. They begin to throw heavy rocks on him. You can imagine the bones breaking, the flesh bruising. And as he still lives and gasps for air, somebody takes a fuller's club. It's this stick with this heavy, like, swing club on the end that's used to beat out clothes. And they smash his head and literally break his skull. And that's how he dies. Brutal. So basically, right before this moment, right before he's killed, after years and years of following his brother, after years and years of leading the Christian community in Jerusalem through one difficulty or another, negotiating the nuance of bringing Gentiles in uh, with Peter and his vision, after all of this, he decides to write a letter to all Christians, this letter that we're reading. And for this letter, he draws heavily on two sources. Number one is the, the Sermon on the Mount. And number two is the book of Proverbs. Because of this, the book reads like these two books. It doesn't read like a narrative or one of Paul's letters. Basically, he'll hit you with a key idea, with a proverb, that will expose how you're falling short. And then he'll encourage you to do better. So it's, it's much more kind of punchy, right? The first chapter is kind of an introduction chapter that introduces you to all the key ideas. And then chapters two through five give you kind of 12 main proverbs or blocks. Now, we're not going to cover them all. You can go read them one at a time and sit there and ponder them. That's how proverbs are meant to be done. But we're going to hit some of the big ones. All right? Okay. So let's start with chapter one. And kind of the classic one-liner proverb style that uh, Jacob, never called James in his entire life, uses. He says, chapter 1, verse 2, first proverb here. My brethren, this is kind of like a, a main thesis point here. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Now, right off the bat, you're probably like, what the heck? Be super happy about temptation? Well, here's the thing. The Greek for temptation here is trial. What Jacob is really saying here is probably best found in a different translation. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, let's be super clear. Temptations are a form of trial. And we would be better off at, at, at looking at our, tr our temptations as a, as a way of uh, being refined and tried and... Um, seeing if we will grow much more than we see temptations as we do now as a, a labeling of our inadequacy and how we're falling short and should be uh, and that we're on Satan's team because we're, we're tempted. But anyways, 
Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And honestly, this is still probably pretty tough to make a lot of sense of. This is lifelong, upper-level Christianity. This is mature Christianity. Be glad, he's saying, for the discomfort you feel. Be glad for the discomfort you feel. Why? Well, he goes on in verse 3. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. In other words, you don't learn to bounce back unless you get bounced. God needs you to learn how to keep going even when it doesn't work for you. It's legit tough, but it's the basic element of faith to be a creator when you don't see the end results. Verse 4, but let patience, we'll say perseverance as it says in other translations, just keep going. Let this idea that you just keep going have perfect work that you may be perfect and entire. Now, most of us are deeply uncomfortable with the word perfect, but the Greek here simply means that you have passed through the stages to become mature or complete. So let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. In other words, keep going so that you can develop how you need to develop so that you can be the best you. Whatever it is that you're going through right now that's uncomfortable, it's a necessary stage in you becoming a more complete person. Now, you can run from this discomfort and it will keep dogging your heels or you can let this discomfort pass through you and transform you in the process. One of these approaches leads to fear and the other leads to transformation. Here's how Jacob sums it up. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive a crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. That's it. Just let the uncomfortable situation be. Persevere and find your way forward. God will sustain you and lift you up in the process. It's like that old, uh, that old song. You can't go over it. Can't go under it. Gotta go through it. Right? Jacob also invites us to remember that uh, life and trials are like vapor. Here he's alluding to Proverbs where the, the author says, uh, everything is vapor. Everything passes away. He says, These trials appear for a little time, then vanish away. More or less, if you can just wait, things will change. But he says, if you find yourself in discomfort and you don't feel like you have what it takes to make it through this uncomfortable situation, this trial or this temptation, if you lack wisdom, he says, now now Jacob uh, is quoting using a Greek word in wisdom that means a lack of clarity, a lack of understanding, a lack of knowledge, or even a lack of skill. So he's saying, if you're going through a temptation and you don't have the knowledge or the skill that is necessary to make it through, well, what do you do then? 
What if you're inadequate to the task that life has placed in front of you? Well, he says, if you lack wisdom, if you lack knowledge or skill to make it through your trial, let him ask of God that giveth to all generously without finding fault and it will be given you. (laughs) I know it sounds simple, but listen, far, far, far too often, When we pray, we pray for our external circumstances to be changed so that we feel more comfortable. We don't want to change. We want the outside to change. We want the outside to be tailored to our comfort. And James is saying the uncomfortable external circumstances are the point. So if you pray for them to be magicked away, you are missing the point. But if you pray for clarity of understanding or if you pray for the necessary skills that will help you to be a more fully developed child of God, ah, now we're talking, Jacob says. Then God is going to give you generously. And he's not going to be like, what you are doing asking, what are you doing asking for help? (laughs) He's not going to be like that, right? No, no criticism at all. He is looking to help you out here. Then, Jacob turns from this internal idea of being comfortable with discomfort to the external. He says, okay, you're moving forward through life. You're making through your own trials. What's the next step to live like a Christian? Well, he says, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. Visit the fatherless. Visit the widows in their affliction. Keep yourself unspotted from the world. So he says, guys, we have this natural disposition to be nice to people who can do good things for us. People who are well off, people who are well, who are good looking, talented, or just fun. It's easy to be nice to those people. They check boxes for what we crave. It's so much harder to be nice to people who are hard who don't have their lives together, who, who suck up your emotional energy, who just can't seem to get their crap together. He's like, I get it. But that's not how God operates. God sends sun and rain and nourishment to the cheery people and to the difficult people. And he's asking you to develop this same capacity. In fact, he says, doing this work of caring for those who can't seem to take care of their own business is the work of faith. He says, if someone is hungry or cold, mature Christian faith means that we help them do the, we, we do the work to better their situation. And I think faith is a good word here because we're doing work that we may not see the outcome from. Here's how he puts it. Even so, faith. If it hath not works, and he's talking about caring for people, Right? is dead being alone. Yeah, man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. For... As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. 
But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Okay, uh, let's make sure we're clear on these verses, because these verses have been used by generations of Latter-day Saints to grind your obedience and earn your way into God's kingdom. But honestly, that's just taking these verses completely out of context. Earlier in the same chapter, James says, Whosoever shall keep the whole law, grind, be obedient, do the very best, you obey everything, and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. In other words, you can obey everything, and if you botch one little thing, you're guilty, and the punishment of being guilty is separation from God. It doesn't matter that you can answer all the temple recommend questions perfectly and someone else can't. Fact of the matter is, without Jesus, you're both equally screwed. There's no comparison here. It's Jesus or nothing for all of us. In fact, in the Book of Mormon, Mormon teaches his son Moroni that even putting faith in priesthood ordinances, if that faith is divorced from God, it has no power. Moroni, put, uh, excuse me, Mormon says it's putting trust in dead works. No amount of temple, no amount of priesthood, no amount of worthiness is going to do anything for us without Jesus. We trust God, not us, not law, not anything else. And so he is saying, but when we trust God, we are going to manifest that trust by doing good works ourselves and doing good works for others. It is not that those works save us. It is that those works manifest our identity as children of God. I taught Scout's class this morning and somebody's like, oh, so you and Scout look a lot alike. Now, obviously he's blonde and I'm not, but there are similarities. And he's saying the same thing. You and Jesus, you look a lot alike. You and Jesus, I, I get the same vibe from you. I get the same feel from you. That's what he is saying. So, um, Jacob is saying, you face your trials, you seek to grow, and do your part then to alleviate the trials that others are facing. That's the gospel. That's it. Trust God enough to keep trying and then give hope to others so that they keep trying. That's our whole work of faith. Doable, right? You hear me on that? Okay. You ready for another proverb from Jacob? Well, here we go. Next, he, he hits like Morgan Wallen on the way I talk. Here's his proverb. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Slow to speak. Why, why, why does he focus on speaking? Why does he focus on the way we talk? Well, he says, the tongue is a fire. The tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Tell me he's wrong. He's not wrong, man. The things we say, I would argue first to ourselves, then about others, then to others, are so regularly poisonous. 
The way we talk burns bridges in minutes that have taken years to build. So James says, be conscious of how you're talking. Far too frequently, you're a puppet, a passive participant to the natural woman or the natural man in your life, just spouting off hurt in a defensive rush, thinking it will make you feel more safe and protected, that it will show them. But it's all just a bunch of lies from your natural man. If you want a good life, be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Let's understand some basic biology real quick on this. Most of the time you speak in a destructive manner, you do so from a place of fear and anger. Here's what's going on. Something happens and you feel threatened. It's probably not an actual threat. Like a saber-toothed tiger is not going to eat you. You're probably not going to die. But the same primitive biological systems that keep you safe from getting eaten kick in to protect you when you feel threatened. They flood your body with stress hormones so you can kick the crap out of something or run away from a mammoth. And then in survival mode, you speak like an idiot. I mean it. Your survival instincts makes you say stupid, damaging stuff to yourself, about others, and to others. So stop. Now, in saying this, like, I don't think you need to fix this. Jesus has you. Trust him. Trust that he has you, that you're protected. And this will do more for your feeling of safety than any words you can say. When you have made that decision to trust Jesus, then do the biological work to counteract this stress reaction. Relax. Just as there is a stress response, there's a relaxation response. Take a deep breath. What does he say here? Be slow to speak, slow to wrath. Take a deep breath. Relax your shoulders. Relax your heart. Say a prayer and settle. This does not mean you don't deal with stuff. Yes, deal with it. But deal with it in a way you can live with. Deal with it in a way that builds. Deal with it from the space of a mature Christian, not a feral animal fighting over rat hole survival. Okay? Jacob argues that working on this one thing will change your life. If any one man offends not in word, the same is perfect, mature, complete human man, right? And able also to bridle the whole body. He's like, if you can work on the things you say, you're going to be able to control all the other things you want to control in your life. Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouths that they may obey us. And we turn about their whole body. And behold, the ships, which though they may be, uh, be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about by very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth, even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. In other words, huge ships are moved by tiny routers. Small bits of metal control large animals. Skillful communication can control your life. So practice skillful communication. Work on this one area. And he says it will will kind of begin to transform your whole life. Why not try him out on this invite this week? See if it really works. President Nelson has recently taught the same principle. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, 
as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are, we are to be examples of how to interact with others, especially when we have differences of opinion. One of the easiest ways to identify a true follower of Jesus Christ is how compassionately that person treats other people. The Savior's atonement made it possible for us to overcome all evil, including contention. My brothers and sisters, how we treat each other really matters. How we speak to and about others at home, at church, at work, and online really matters. Today, I'm asking us to interact with others in a higher, holier way. Please listen carefully. If there is anything virtuous, lovely, or of good report or praiseworthy that we can say about another person, whether to his face or behind her back, that should be our standard of communication. President Nelson goes on to say that if you're struggling, ask God for his enabling power. Exactly what James taught us earlier. If you, if you lack a skill that will help you to be more complete, ask God. He won't get down on you for lacking. He'll give you generously what you desire, but really trust that he, he can help you here. This is how James says it. When you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. So today, maybe even just for the next five minutes, let's practice using language to build. And if you're not feeling it, take a, a breath, relax, and ask God for help. That's it. Sound good? All right, one final thing. James says, is there any sick among you? Let him call in the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. We believe in the healing of the sick. We believe in miracles. One of the best summaries on how this can work is told by Elder Oaks in his talk, Healing the Sick. I think it's worthwhile to review a little bit here what he says. This is Elder Oaks. He says, Latter-day Saints believe in applying the best available scientific knowledge and techniques. We use nutrition, exercise, and other practices to preserve health. And we enlist the help of healing practitioners such as physicians and servant, sur surgeons to restore health. The use of medical science is not at odds with our prayers of faith and our reliance on priesthood blessings. Additionally, he says, we believe in the healing power of prayer and priesthood blessings. Um, and then he goes on. He says, there are five parts to the use of priesthood authority to bless the sick. The anointing, the sealing of the anointing, faith, the words of the blessing, and the will of the Lord. So he starts with the, the idea of the anointing. He says, the Old Testament frequently mentions anointing with oil as part of a blessing conferred by priesthood authority. Anointings were declared to be for the sanctification and perhaps also be seen as symbolic of the blessing to be poured out from heaven as a result of this sacred act. Then he addresses sealing of the anointing. He says, when someone has been anointed by the authority of the Melchizedek priesthood, the anointing is sealed by that same authority. 
To seal something means to affirm it, to make it binding for its intended purpose. When elders anoint a sick person and seal the anointing, they open the windows of heaven for the Lord to pour out, pour forth the blessing he wills for the person afflicted. Then he talks about faith. He says, faith is essential for the healing powers of heaven. The major element is the faith of the individual when that person is conscious and accountable. Thy faith hath made thee whole was repeated so often by the master that it almost became a chorus. Then he addresses the words of the blessing. He says, another part of the priesthood blessing is the words of blessing spoken by the elder after he seals the anointing. These words can be very important, but their content is not essential. The anointing, the sealing, faith, and the will of the Lord uh, are the essential elements. Consequently, brethren, no elder should ever hesitate to participate in a healing blessing because of fear he will not know what to say. The words spoken in a healing blessing can edify and energize the faith of those who hear them, but the effect of the blessing is dependent upon the faith of the Lord's uh, faith and the Lord's will, not on the words spoken by the elder officiating. Now he addresses the will of the Lord. He says, "As we exercise the undoubted power of the priesthood of God, as we treasure his promise that he will hear and answer the prayer of faith, we must always remember that faith and the healing power of the priesthood cannot produce a result contrary to the will of him whose priesthood it is. As children of God, knowing of his great love and his ultimate knowledge of what is best for our eternal welfare, we trust in him. The first principle of the gospel is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and faith means trust. I felt that trust in a talk my cousin gave at the funeral of a teenage girl who had died of a serious illness. He spoke these words, which has first astonished me and then edified me. I know it was the will of the Lord that she die. She had good medical care. She was given priesthood blessings. Her name was on the prayer roll in the temple. She was subject to hundreds of prayers for the restoration of he- to health. And I know that there is enough faith in this family that she would have been healed unless it was the will of the Lord to take her home at this time. I felt that same trust in the words of the father of another choice girl whose life was taken by cancer in her teen years. He declared, Our family's faith is in Jesus Christ and is not dependent on outcomes. Those teachings ring true to me. We do all that we can for the healing of a loved one and then we trust in the Lord for the outcome. End quote. For me, I just want to share with you that that I believe that God is mighty to heal. I have felt him hear and answer my prayers. Our prayers influence outcomes. Here's the formula for me. I try to feel the flow of God. If I feel he's neutral to a situation or I just don't know uh, his sentiment, I can't discern it. Then I go full send on what I want, acting in the moment, but trusting the outcome to God. I know that this is kind of a tricky tension, but I think it's valuable to learn how to balance there. If we can let go of the outcome and simply act in the moment, there's great power there. Faith only lives in the present moment. Creation only happens now. I I don't know where God's taking you. 
But Jacob seems to be pretty clear that it will lead you to uncomfortable places. Remember how he died? And Jacob's older brother was tortured to death on the cross. So I think it's a reasonable expectation to expect discomfort. But simultaneously, expect divine intervention. Expect whatever emotional, spiritual, or physical support you need as you go through trials, like the brave pioneer you are. And if you can do nothing else for the moment, just be still and know that I am God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.